speak the words we hear, that your words of life to us are God. Amen. There are a lot of things weaving their way through all our readings this morning. We have that horrific reading from Genesis, the binding of Isaac. The reading from Romans, which is all about communal sin. The reading from Matthew and what it means to be an apostle. And in all of that, we're celebrating a harvest festival. So how do we make sense of all of that? Well, we'll start with the Akira, the binding of Isaac, which is simply horrific, isn't it? And for the last 3,000 years, people of all three faiths that look to this reading, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, have wrestled with that story, what it might mean. Because it is a hard story. It's a difficult story. And yet it sits at the centre of our faith. What kind of God would demand child sacrifice, even if it's a test? And what kind of father would agree to it, even if he knew all along that it would be fine in the end? This reading plays an important role in all three faith traditions that look back to Abraham. Within Islam, for example, they see the rock in the dome of the rock in Quran al Sharif as the rock in which Ibrahim brought his Ishmael, not Isaac, Ishmael, to be sacrificed. And so it's the third holiest place within Islam, the other two being Mecca and Medina. And within Judaism, this place marked Moriah. They also see this as the place where, most, uh, where Abraham brought Isaac to be sacrificed. And that was the site of the temple, and the place where the sacrifice happened, or didn't happen, was the Holy of Holies, at the heart of the temple. And so for both of those faith traditions, this sets up the holiest of places. How each tradition reads this story also varies, and in some ways how we read it is shaped by the age of Isaac or Ishmael. So when you hear that story, we're Christians, so we see him as Isaac, what age do you think Isaac is? Four? Four or five, yeah, four or five, that's, 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 you can read it that way. Anyone else see it any different way? Twelve. Twelve, okay. 12 year olds, anyone else? 20. Okay, that's really pushing it. Alright. The age of Isaac changes it. So, for example, if, if, if Isaac, we can have a look at the next one. If Isaac is a young boy uh, who's trusting his father. So he's young, his father's strong, well, he's not that until age is quite old, but I guess the story was quite old. Um, but even there, like, Isaac is trusting his father as, as Abraham is trusting God. And there's a great deal of trust involved in that. And so, uh, for Islam in particular, but certainly in the other two faith traditions, one of the messages of the story is about the trust and obedience of Abraham, Abraham, trusting and obeying God. And that's important because actually, up to this point, Abraham hadn't been, or Abraham had not been that trusting. 
He ducked and died and done all sorts of things because he did not trust the promise that God had given him. So, you know, that's a, that is part of that story. But if he's older, so the next slide shows him as older, if he's, say, 16 or 17, and is strong enough to carry that wood himself, then, then he knows what's going on. Because he knows that a common practice in the people they live amongst is child sacrifice. It's not unheard of. And so when he's taken off without a sacrificial lamb, there's got to be a warning bell in his head. And he asks the question, where's the lamb? And if he's the strong and fit one, and dad's the old and frail one, he can leave at any point. He can just walk away. He goes, no, I'm not having a bar of this. Find someone else to sacrifice. And if he's older and does that, then the story becomes one around him who obeys as well and is willing to carry the wood of his own sacrifice and death. And that's certainly how Christians from about the second century understood the story, as a precursor to Christ, who also was the obedient son who carried his own wood to his own sacrifice and death. And so one of the readings we can have on Good Friday is this terrific story, because it's the precursor. So how we understand the story is in some ways shaped by the age of Isaac Ishmael. When we put the story back into the world in which Abraham, Abraham existed, then child sacrifice happened and continued to happen. We can see that in the Bible. Kings of Israel sacrificed their sons. They did it because, well, partly they had too many. If you've got 30 or 40 wives and concubines, all of whom are producing children for you, then you've got lots of sons and daughters, and daughters you can marry off, but sons become a bit of a nuisance. Only one inherits. So what happens to the others? You can spare one or two. Kind of gets rid of a bit of a problem. And everyone else does it. All the other royal families do it. All the other leading families do it. And they sacrifice children to ensure that their family stays where it is. At the top of the heap. That their power and wealth is maintained. And if it works for them, so surely we should do it as well. And that's part of what's going on in the story. Works for them, surely I should do it as well. So this is the story then that makes it clear for the people who follow God that the people who follow God do not need to do as everyone else does. Yes, everyone else is willing to sacrifice their children. You do not need to sacrifice your children because the message of the story is God provides. That is what they named the place. God provides. You don't need to do as everyone else. God is present. God will provide. And that is the main message of the story. Horrific as the story is. And we can't disguise that. So this story says... You don't need to do as everyone else does. You do not need to sacrifice your children. Child sacrifice is not to be tolerated. 
and it is outlawed in the law, and the prophets speak against it. Most importantly, this message says that God is present, that God will provide, that God will always provide. And that's a really important message for us in our Harvest Festival. As I've said before on other Harvest Festivals, Harvest Festivals are opportunities for us to give thanks. First of all, they hook back into important events from when we were younger. When we lived in communities who gathered together to celebrate the harvest. And many of us grew up in those kind of communities. And it reminds us of those good memories. But it also provides us an opportunity to give thanks for the joy of gardening. And I'm using us in a loose way here. <laughs> to be fair. Like we do have a garden and in it is spinach and rhubarb and weeds. And somebody at 8 o'clock said, well you can't eat the weeds. And I had to reply, well, actually, you can. So two of our parishioners, John and Mary Sitch, uh, their daughter Julia, that's exactly what she eats, the weeds. And she knows which weeds you can eat. And her diet consists mostly of those weeds. And a week ago, Bonnie and I went out for dinner as a Christmas uh, present from our children. It was supposed to be March, but the thing was now, and it was called a kitchen takeover, which is a devastation uh, in different places. And last time's theme was uh, hunter and gatherer. And they had contracted Julia to show them what they could add to the menu what weeds we ate. So we ate weeds last Saturday night. <laughs> Amongst some other really delicious things. The weeds are delicious is what I need to say. So, but back to the, back to the serious part. Today we give thanks for the joy of God. For the joy of the harvest that our labours reap. The simple joy of growing things in our own land and being able to eat what we have grown. Today we are able to give thanks for all of that. But we're also on a bigger scale able to give thanks for all those who work the land, for the farmers and orchardists and all who work the land on our behalf. For the many people who work for them, for the pickers and the labourers. We also give thanks uh, for all those who work, for example, in the pack houses and the supporting industries. And then there's the wider group of people who support them by doing research and sales and exporting in banks. And in our parish we have a number of people who are involved in those kinds of activities. So we have uh, the Maxes, for example. So um, Shane and William work for Zestri and are often overseas. Well, not at the moment, they're not allowed to go, but are often overseas, particularly in South Korea and China, um, in their activities there in terms of selling Kiwi fruit, but also developing the kiwi fruit industry in those places which Sestri is involved with. We have um, people who are kiwi fruit orchardists, so Leslie Jensen and Trevor Southey are kiwi fruit growers. And Leslie is also involved in dairy farming, quite a family is. Uh, and then we have um, the packers who come here occasionally from Vanuatu. Uh, and we have people who are involved in the banking industry. And we have Cliff and Paula who grow avocados. And James and uh, Margie were involved in growing olives for a while. So um, we have quite a, quite a connection with those people who supply the food for us. And the last thing that we can give thanks for today is all those who work in and around the supermarkets. Particularly at this time, we can give thanks to them who stayed open 
during level four and actually put their lives at risk somewhat. While we were all stayed safely in our bubbles and scuffled into the supermarket and carefully spaced things, we could scuffle home again at the end of it. Some of us it was easier than others, we just had to cross the road. Uh, they were there all day and were much more likely to, if they were to contract the disease, to contract it. And the more contact you have with those people while you're contracting that disease, the more likely you are to have a serious case of it. So they put their lives in the line for us, and we can give thanks to them this harvest festival. So in all this, it is important that we remember the message, I think, from that first terrific story. And one of the um, commentators I read in preparation for this said this, the story of the Akira makes a claim on us. All that we have, even our own lives and those of the ones most dear to us, belong ultimately to God, who gave them to us in the first place. The story of the Akira assures us that God will provide that God will be present, that God will always provide, and that God will always be present. So as we celebrate our harvest today, we remember that God is present and God will provide, and God provides through all of these people and all of this industry. And we celebrate God's goodness and generosity towards us. In the invitation in all of this to live out our thankfulness for God's generosity and presence in our individual lives and in our life as a community, we have our gospel reading, which I think offers a slightly different dimension. Today's gospel reading comes right at the end of Jesus' instructions to the apostles. And apostles now has this kind of highfalutin title thing about it, doesn't it? Like, these are the cream people, the apostles. But actually, when the Gospel writers used the word apostles, all it meant was sent. These are the ones who were sent. So these twelve have been chosen to be sent. That's all it meant. Later on, it kind of got this title thing to it. But uh, Matthew's kind of claim in all of this is that we are apostles because we too are sent. So when Jesus is giving these instructions, he's not only giving it to the twelve, but in Matthew's Gospel, ultimately he's giving it to his community, and through his community, to us. And he began those instructions by telling them what they could take when they were sent. Can you remember what they were to take? Nothing. He was listening. Not a lot. No shoes, no staff, no money belt, no extra tunic. They were to be utterly dependent on the people they encountered. So today's lesson kind of goes back to the beginning about the kind of welcome they will need if they are to survive. And we often read this as about uh, how we welcome others, and there's certainly an element of that, but if we read it as uh, we are the ones who are doing the welcoming, then we're, we're ignoring the fact that actually we're the ones who are sent. And we are the ones who are to be welcomed. So that's a, that's a difficult part of this reading that most of we just kind of gloss over and read about who we should be welcoming. So that's, that's the first thing to notice. When we talked about this reading on Tuesday, so we generally talk about the Gospel reading coming up on the Tuesday midday services, we talked about how over this period our experience of welcome has been really different 
hasn't it? Like we haven't been able to welcome people into our houses. We weren't able to do that. We weren't allowed. Not even our families. So we had to find ways of welcoming that was different. And so one person talked about uh, welcoming people from a distance. So in the little street that she lives in, there was a man who walks the dog who she hadn't been able to talk to, but because there wasn't a lot else going and he was out there a lot more, she was able to strike up a conversation from a distance. She welcomed him from a distance. And that was able to then generate a relationship with that man. And they're growing that relationship now that they are able to enter into each other's houses. But that welcome was offered. And so for some of us, we've been able to do that. Meet people and build relationships, welcome people in ways that we haven't been able to in the past. Simply because we were all there and able to do that. As I said last week, the week before, I was kind of surprised I didn't see more of my neighbours. I was looking forward to being able to do that. But they all kind of seemed to um, not come out of their houses very much. So that did not happen. And that's, that's another part of that, that actually we weren't able to. For some of us, that welcome didn't happen. So there was a frustration about that level of work that we were looking forward to. And then for some, there's just that they needed to accept the welcome of others, whether they liked him or not. And so we had someone living with us who we agreed, they agreed to come and live with us for a couple of weeks before Easter while they sorted out their living arrangements, because they organised all these house sets, which then all fell over because no one was going overseas. And she moved in on Saturday, as things were turning to custom by Monday, she was staying with us for the foreseeable future. And then our two daughters came and gate crashed her part of the house. So, you know, she had to accept our welcome, whatever that looked like, because she had no choice. And there were a lot of people for whom they were just stuck wherever they were, wherever they liked it or not. So that, that was hard for her. I think she's smart. Underlying this whole thing of welcome is how we see other people. And then the kind of relationships that come out of that. In Jesus' instructions is the idea that the apostles, the sent ones, and through them we become envoys or representatives of the sending God. That when people welcome us and when we welcome other people, we're not welcome, just welcoming them but we are welcoming God. And the kinds of relationships we then build are built on that. And that was different from the kinds of relationships that people had then as it is now. And that's what Jesus was asking of his apostles. As he was sending them out, he was saying, you have to encounter people, engage people differently from what you're used to. And they need to encounter you differently from what they're used to. You're not just so-and-so from this family. You represent God. And so when they meet you, they have to meet this God who is always present and who always provides, who is generous. So you have to be generous as they are generous. And so on this Harvest Festival Sunday, when we celebrate God's goodness and God's generosity and God's presence, that is the invitation for us, to be such people in our relationships with others. Offering welcome and receiving welcome. 
One commentator I read wondered what would happen if we truly believe that we bear the presence of Christ to every person we encounter, in every home, workplace, or neighborhood we enter. What would happen if we saw every conversation as an opportunity to speak words of grace, and every interaction as an opportunity to embody God's love for the neighbor? Lastly, I want to suggest that actually it's bigger than just our neighbourhood. That actually on this Harvest Festival, because our food comes from all around the world, that we need to think about the relationships we have. Not only with the world we live in, but all those who grow the food around the world, who provide this for us and are involved in the industries that get the food to us. And so I wonder what would happen if we took this attitude into our choices about what we buy and where we buy it. Do we live in a way that in our choices we convey God's presence, God's generosity to all? So for example, do we buy from stores that pay their staff well? Or do we just look for the store that's cheapest? Do we buy products that have ethical supply lines? Do we buy products that are grown in ways that are sustainable and not damaging to the planet? Or do we just look for the cheapest? So as we think about all of these things, I wonder for you and for us, what is the invitation this Harvest Festival? What is the invitation for us this Harvest Festival? I invite you to turn around and have a conversation those who are sitting for a moment or two. What is the invitation of this harvest festival?